is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the true titans of modern motion picture history, a touchstone of Western pop culture and the launch pad for one of the most valuable media franchises of all time. I'm talking about something that began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'm talking about Star Wars. In 1977, George Lucas brought to the screen a space opera that had been percolating in his imagination to some degree or another since he was a kid. Just two years before, a rough cut of the movie was roundly dismissed by many of his filmmaking peers, but with the encouragement of friend Steven Spielberg, Lucas, a young auteur who really wanted to prove that he could make a movie with mass market appeal, kept working on his grand vision. And on May 4th, 1977, his movie debuted and the world was never the same. Star Wars had arrived. Star Wars begins with the blasting fanfare composed by modern soundtrack master John Williams and an opening crawl of text that stretches into an endless starscape, welcoming us into a universe and an adventure we will never forget. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. What follows from there is a tale that became such an immense and enduring hit that film critics, psychologists, social scientists, and more has spent years unpacking it. Star Wars invites us to take, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would put it, our first step into a larger world. It is an epic yarn of good versus evil, drawing on heroic archetypes familiar to everyone. It expresses a moral certainty for an uncertain and fractious time. It offers a genre mashup that openly draws from 1940s science fiction serials, World War II dogfighting, Old West gunslinging, Chanbara sword fighting, 1950s hot riding, and Age of Sail swashbuckling. It showcases starships that race past the camera and battle stations big enough to be mistaken for moons. It portrays a universe with dazzling technology, exotic locales, and bewildering aliens, but one that is also familiar, age-worn, and lived in. And it introduces us to the Force, an energy field created by all living things that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds the galaxy together. But more importantly, the Force is an idea that delivers a sense of awe, introspection, and revelation in a way that judges none and welcomes all. Star Wars was not the first modern blockbuster, but it was definitely one of the most influential, and it remains one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And with its various sequels and TV series to follow, Star Wars kicked off what is currently one of the biggest media franchises in world history. Since 1977, Star Wars merchandising alone has racked up more than $200 billion in sales. That's enough to have entirely funded the U.S. space shuttle program. The success of Star Wars has created a high watermark that movie makers of all kinds would look to forever after. Besides its financial success, it was a huge technical leap forward, heralding the invention of new cameras, uh, special effects, and soundscaping to create an unprecedented paradigm for what was possible to bring to the eye and ear. Together, these things would bring newfound respectability to science fiction movie making, as well as cinematic effects as more than mere spectacle, but as legitimate avenues for enduring, compelling storytelling. And this brings us to where Star Wars has had its most lasting impact on popular culture, where it has become embedded into our global subconscious. Just about everybody on planet Earth knows Star Wars, knows about it, or knows somebody who won't shut up about it. 
It was entered into the National Film Registry in 1989. It was the first major motion picture translated into Navajo. Rainbow Canyon in Death Valley, where U.S. fighter pilots perform daring low-altitude stunt flying, is better known as Star Wars Canyon. May the 4th is an unofficial international holiday. People list Jedi as their religion in government censuses. And use the force, Luke, remains a knee-jerk exclamation for anyone trying to give encouragement, sarcastic or not, to somebody attempting the impossible. Even now, more than 40 years later, this story about a farm boy, a princess, a scoundrel, a Wookiee, an old Jedi, a pair of squabbling droids, a terrifying villain, more machine now than man, a sinister empire, and a valiant rebellion all remain as fresh and accessible to its new viewers as it ever did. This is a movie that probably laid the first cornerstone of my geek self, and I am so excited to talk about it now. All wings, report in. Chris Crenshaw, Red 5, standing by. Jack Porkins, I mean, Tom Hespos, Red Six, standing by. Go Peace, Gold Leader, stay on target. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. I'm just going to start off by saying this whole movie is nothing but a series of moments of truth. I mean, you, I'll just, you just go through the scene breakdown. You could pull one from every scene in this movie. I could stop and have a 20-minute conversation about, honestly, I've, I have thought about and dissected this movie so much over the years. We're going to kick off, and Chris, I'm going to throw it to you with the first moment of truth in this one, because it's a... It's a great scene. It's, it's maybe not one of the scenes that people automatically think of as, a, as like an iconic scene, you know, when they talk about Star Wars, but it's such a great one and it's so important and it really sets a tone. So, so take it away. My scene is, it comes just after Obi-Wan Kenobi, Old Man Ben has rescued Luke from the Tusken Raiders. He sees Princess Leia's message, Kenobi does, and decides he needs Luke's help to address this new threat. Obviously, you know, in, in retrospect, we, we know that he, he sees that Luke's training is going to be uh, important to the entire galaxy. And it, it's a really manipulative move, but he reaches into a chest and, and says, your father wanted you to have this when you're old enough, but your uncle wouldn't listen. And he hands him his father's lightsaber. And Luke, with this look of wonder on his face, he takes it and... He, he presses the ignition stud and that sound, Bill, changed the world for me. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, now I, I watch Luke waving this lightsaber around and I'm like, oh, dude, you are going to take your hand off. <laughs> That's because you're a father. <laughs> you're going to push your eye out. Yeah. Parents see that scene totally different than kids, but I'm sorry, continue. It's true. But but at that moment, in that moment, Bill, six years old, I realized that the world would be a better, safer place if somebody would just give me a lightsaber. <laughs> and uh, nothing has ever shaken that conviction in me. Yeah. If I went to a job fair, I would be looking for Jedi as a job. <laughs> for me, Billy, it was it was like a, a almost a morally foundational moment. You know, this yeah. was I, I guess maybe what uh, the Lone Ranger was to our parents or or somebody like that. This was what a good guy was, you know, a, a handsome young man standing up and and learning to fight for others and. I, Bill, I, I, it's uh, it's childish, no doubt. It is morally simplistic, but I want to be a Jedi Knight, 
And I mm -hmm. think that the world really would be a better place with them in it. Yeah. That's Arthur pulling the sword from the stone, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. you know, there, there, yeah. there's so much power of myth that, you know, Joseph Campbell that, uh, that Lucas draws from. And that this is, I mean, he's, he's laying it on thick here. He says, look, pull the sword from the stone and here's the heir to all that's good and righteous. Yeah. So I, I completely agree with you, Chris. It, it is... It lays it on thick, and yet we scoop it up with the biggest spoon we can find. <laughs> yeah. oh, who doesn't want their own lightsaber? Come on. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, really? I'm 48. I bought my own lightsaber. You know, like, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I one, too. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, is, is there any sound effect more instantly evocative in all of science fiction filmmaking than the sound of a swooshing lightsaber? I mean, like, you hear that, you immediately know what that is. I mean, you may, you probably haven't even seen Star Wars. You hear that, you're gonna, oh, that's one of those light swords. I mean, like it's such that sound just grabs your attention. It's impossible to ignore. It's it's such a cool sound. It was such a cool sound for me, Bill. It is the ultimate sound effect. It is. It, yeah. There is nothing that that it just yeah. reaches into me and pulls out the reaction at once. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about this scene is you feel that wonder that Luke feels when he's gazing upon this thing. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like, what is this thing? As a filmmaker, you're like, what is that thing? You know, but what's so cool is I love, I love Ben Kenobi in this scene because, you know, Luke is literally awash in the light from this blade, right? He's like gazing into it. And that's when Kenobi drops on him and goes, this is the weapon of the Jedi Knight. And he just talks about, in a way that only Sir Alec Guinness could have done, right? This yeah. perfectly clipped... Just a couple lines talking about, you know, for a thousand generations, the Genonites were guardians of peace and justice in the Republic. And he just, with a few deft sentences, crafts this, this wisp of a dream of what it once was to live in a galaxy that wasn't ruled by terror, didn't have an empire reigning over it, and had people like this who were enforcing peace and justice. And like instantly, and he goes, you know, it's a, you know, an elegant weapon from a more civilized age. And I- Not as random as a, kid, as a blaster. Yeah, right, yeah, I yeah, just, yeah. I believed it. I mean, I believed it. Hook, line, sinker. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. suddenly he is not just explaining to me why lightsaber is cool and why Jedis are cool, but the whole mission statement for what they fought for, like just came in my young head, came fully formed. And it just it hit me like a thunderbolt as I watched. And I think about that when I see Luke playing with the saber for the first time. It's like, oh man, <laughs> oh man. You know? And for the next, you know, 30 years, every time we saw a Jedi, he was doing something even cooler. You know, they, yeah. They, like, yeah. They, the Jedi just keep getting cooler, right? <laughs> they never get so less let's, cool. Well, let's, 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 let's look at this also from, I mean, from a Luke Skywalker standpoint, right? Like, yeah. obviously, we all wanted to be Han Solo, right? And like, no, Luke Skywalker. No, 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 okay, no, sorry. no. Okay, Chris, sorry. Chris wanted, Chris wanted to be Aunt Beru. I'm sorry. But like, <laughs> from, from the standpoint of like, here's Luke, like we are introduced to Luke and he is a whiny sort of forgettable character with the exception of the fact that when he first shows his face, we get John Williams strains of hero music. Yeah. And so we know, okay, we know, we're, we're, we're told here's our guy, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but we're not shown anything until this moment. We're shown him as a petulant child. Mm -hmm. essentially until this moment where he's waving the lightsaber and all of a sudden we're with him. We're ready. We're, we're like, here's our guy. We're going to go beyond this hero's journey with him. And, and the lightsaber in this moment changes the narrative from Luke as, as someone from the OC or Disney to like, Oh, he could be a hero because yeah. he's got this awesome lightsaber. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say Joe that, that as a six year old, I would not have found 
anything less than completely identifiable with a whiny rat. <laughs> well, th- that- <laughs> they made him drink blue milk. I mean, you know, <laughs> you'd whine about that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it is funny because for all the grief that, that Lucas can get at times for some of the narrative ability that he has and the dialogue that he writes, you're right that Luke is completely understandable as a character from the moment that we meet him that he's stuck on this desert planet and it sucks and his his aunt and uncle yeah they've given him you know a life but this is a life of i mean you know evaporators and yeah. the, the, the the weird tupperware in his in his aunt and uncle's kitchen <laughs> and, and blue milk um, right blue milk. i mean what the, well we all know where that milk comes from, right? Or is that is that later? Is that another movie where the milk comes from? Yeah, yeah. Drinks? Is that a whole different thing? <laughs> that's, that's, a whole different thing. thing. <laughs> that's green milk. It's a whole different thing. But yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, green milk. But you're right. That, that I mean, we, we've all felt at times like, man, if only something happened in my life to pull me out of the, yeah. uh, the drudgery that that is my existence into this this greater narrative, and it yeah. happens to Luke to the point when he goes back and there his aunt and, aunt and uncle is smoking skeletons. He has a heartbeat of. Oh, that sucks. And then he turns to Kenobi and says, get right. me out of here. Let's go have an yeah. adventure. It's yeah. time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even but, think he buried them. He did. He he was <laughs> Literally, there's yeah. nothing here left for me anymore. Pretty dangerous. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. Well, well, we don't really know. We, 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 see, we see him, the, the, the dramatic revenge music plays, you know, he looks down, he looks up, he's got the face of a resolve. And the next thing we see is him returning back to the Jawa you know, it is same day. Quality, you know, but same day. <laughs> what was there to bury? His house is now a big pit in the ground. Kick the bones in and walk They were up. burying I mean, the Jawas, though. <laughs> or burning them anyway. <laughs> they're burning them. Well, the Jawas already done with, with Owen and Baru, okay? All you had left was charcoal. They were just, they were, they were a, a pile of soot at that point. There was not much to, left to do. Screen wipes hide all manner of sin. Oh, that, that is true. We don't know. True. Yes. Right. Hey, but the lighting didn't change much. I didn't take that. it that he stuck around very long now. He wanted to get off this rock for, you know, you had the argument yeah. with his uncle and everything. I mean, this has got to be something that like teenagers in the late 70s had to identify with. Like, my life is boring. I got to get the hell out of here and I'm yeah. stuck. You know, it, it's yeah. just one of those things. <laughs> Just like watching Dazed and Confused. <laughs> all right, all right, what, all right. What, what, you know, you know, one of my favorite moments is the Owen Homestead has has gotten three PO and R two, and you know, Luke's got to clean up the droids, and he triggers that message, that fragment of a message from Leia, and he goes, "Okay, wait a minute, we get you no." Know, he's like, "I think these droids might be stolen," and he starts, you know, and, and Uncle Owen kind of lets it slip about you know Ben Kenobi. He's like, "Wait, wait, wait, what?" And, and suddenly, you know, he, Luke starts getting these notions that like things have been hidden from him. And his uncle is like, you know, I told you to forget it. And he gets just, you know, it gets dissed and dismissed. And he kind of knows he's not going to leave the farm anytime soon. And he heads off. And, and that's when, you know, Brewer's like, you know, he can't stay here forever. But after that is when Luke walks up and it's the binary sunset, right? And they play that the theme is called binary sunset. And he's just basically just like, you know, looking off and watching the twin suns, you know, of Tatooine going down. You know, it's this forlorn music. He's just staring off and, and he's got this notion like, you know, am I ever going to leave this place? You know, am I ever going to see the worlds I want to see? Am I ever going to have the adventures I dream of having? I, I feel like there's something, and it's, it's probably like the hero's journey. He feels something calling to him, but he doesn't know how to answer that call, right? And he doesn't feel like he has the power to do it. He doesn't know what the call says or anything. He's like, I'm ready for something. But the thing is, he's not ready for something. And that, that's the great thing because not long after that, you know, immediately afterwards, the robot, you know, R2, you know, leaves, he goes out to find him, he gets jacked by sand people, runs into Ben Kenobi, they go to a place which is where 
my moment of truth is, which is the extended, you know, most icely, you know, and, and really the cantina scene, which for me is the great moment where Luke finally gets his first taste of what it is he's been asking for. And it's a supreme example of be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. And it's this part, you know, it's about 30, 40 minutes in the movie where Kenobi's like, most icely spaceport. You'll, you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious, which is like the most dramatic understatement ever. Like, okay, sure, cautious is where it starts, dude. But they go into the cantina to find a pilot, right? And the cantina has become just this like iconic moment where they walk in all of a sudden. I mean, the whole movie, you've seen two environments, right? You've seen like shipboard, you know, like on the Death Star or whatever. And you've seen Tatooine, which is not a lot going on. Suddenly in this darkened cantina, it just explodes with just this massive menagerie of aliens, right? Just who they're from all over the galaxy. They've all come to this one spot to have a drink, do business, do whatever, and then get the heck out of there. So, you know, Luke wants to go to the whole galaxy, but here he's in a room where the whole galaxy has come to him. And you can see like it just blows his mind initially. He just, he just, you know, and audiences when they first see the scene, you know, their, their minds are blown. Like, well, what's going on here? I mean, every time you look, there's some totally different alien doing something that doesn't relate to some other alien and you're like you're looking left and right you can't believe what's going on like you're trying to make sense of it there's this great band in the back playing this music you've never even heard before it's like total like alien music just going off it's just so bonkers and it's just this riot of world building in like two minutes it's just so so little screen time and suddenly you were just dunked head first into the richness of this crazy imaginative world that lucas has built that's just so vaster than than our experience so much vaster than luke's experience and it's just it's just such a such a great a great moment when he first walks into the in the, in the bar especially that's that for me where he's just so thunderstruck by what he's seeing and he can't quite grasp the mag and this is the, the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg <laughs> like he he so does not know what's in store for him and we get the sense of that here where he walks up to the bar and within like three minutes of being in the place, he gets accosted by two surly patrons who very nearly kill him, if not for the timely intervention of Kenobi. You know, he's just, you know. Well, he's obviously Luke, a mark. He's obviously a mark. Yeah, he's obviously right, right? a mark. He doesn't he's even do anything. He's a rube. He just walks up to the bar and like walrus man's like, just, you know, just slams into him. He's like, wait, what? <laughs> right? And then, and, then, and then his buddy comes up and he's like, you know, he doesn't like you. I don't like you either. And he just starts off like, I think I'm going to kill you today because you look easy to kill. <laughs> like, it's that kind of a deal. And why? He has no clue. Why don't they want droids in there? I've always, I've always struggled I, I with that. I heard like, that it was because they take up space that could be for people drinking and, and yeah. Because if you don't serve your kind. So serve? I think, I think there, there's want? something about that, Joe, that I absolutely love. And it's like, you get jolted out of this sort <laughs> yeah. of like, menagerie of like different creatures and yeah. stuff like as luke's getting jolted out of it you know like yeah. you get all these great sort of scenes of like you know you see the the hammerhead thing like when i first saw hammerhead in the theater i was like oh my god what is that thing <laughs> i know it is great seen. the way you talk to like gung, 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 gung. it's like what is going see, on i saw the i saw the action figures of those before yeah. i ever saw the movie because of, of my oh, yeah. i was i was two when the movie came out so i I, I He's a wee baby. Just a baron, right? <laughs> but like, like walrus man or hammerhead. Yeah. Maybe I saw the action figures and I was like, these are super cool. And then you'd yeah. see them, you know, on Saturday morning or Saturday night when ABC would run the, you know, the edited movie was when I first saw it, not in the theater, yeah. but but at home. And I would be like, oh, there's, you know, there's hammerhead. Like hammerhead yeah. to me. Like, why is he only on screen for 30 seconds? He's a huge character. He's got his own action figure. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like, like, what, what's the deal? Yeah. 
Yeah. And Tom, you make a great point. Like, like you're just so you're a gog like Luke is. And all of a sudden, like the bartender's like, hey, he's <laughs> like, wait, what? And, and it's, it's a great like circuit breaker moment. I have two explanations for why the droids are not welcome in that bar. And one is inside the story, but outside this particular movie. And one is outside the movies themselves and more about my thoughts on the crafting of the movie. So my inside the movie, but outside Star Wars is that, you know, as we hear during Chris's scene, right? When somebody, you know, you know, my father didn't fight in the Clone Wars. They mentioned the Clone Wars. We don't know what they are. Like, what are the Clone Wars, right? But we later come to learn what they are, right? And the other side are a bunch, is a massive droid army, right? So, you know, my thought had always been after I had seen the prequels and whatnot, I, I just kind of imagined that the bigotry from the bartender towards droids, and which is kind of tacitly accepted by everybody else in the bar, was just like, yeah, droids equal not so great because we, you know, everybody there either had fought they against took one. Job. <laughs> either, they either fought against one or they knew somebody who did. And there's like, we just don't trust robots like we used to. So that's kind of, you know, like that's kind of what, I, that's one thing I have from it. The other one though, I think is a more of a, just a, a meta thing, which is that, you know, I think in Star Wars, Lucas uses um, droids and aliens as stand-ins for different ethnicities. And you can trade upon certain things, broad kind of stereotyping, without actually descending into the ugliness that marks real world, you know, stereotyping. So like you can say like, you know, it's, I guess not wise upset a Wookiee, you might tear your arms off if he loses. Like Chewbacca plays the role for Han, like in a 1930s serial, that would, he would have been like, you know, the ethnic sidekick, right? He would have been somebody, some non-white person who's exotic because he's not white. And you're like, that doesn't play anymore. That's not cool at all, right? You can't. But Chewbacca kind of fills that, that weird role and reinvents it. And you see a lot of that happening. And there's just an interesting commentary on race and ethnicity. I mean, there's no mistake that like the empire is all human. Frankly, it's all, all white humans as well, you know? And so the, the thing with the, the robots is like, it's just, I think it's just a matter of this world is so strange and new and invented, but at the same time, it draws on things we know pretty well. And I think it was just a moment to drop in this dollop of bigotry that, you know, kind of reminds you like, oh, this is how people react. And you're in a big world and you're in the city now and people are going to hate each other for reasons that may have nothing to do with them personally, but it's just, it's just, it's a thing that's there. So that's my roundabout explanation for it. I mean, I can, frankly, I can come up with headcanon for anything in Star Wars. So I can, <laughs> so we all did, man. We all played with the toys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> See, I think it's basically that the droids are, it's not that they're droids, it's that they're gay. And he doesn't want that. <laughs> I do like Tom's idea that a droid's not going to drink anything. Like he's just going right. to sit there and he's going to take, <laughs> take up, up the free, you know, take up yeah. space. He's going to jump on the free Wi-Fi. He's going to dump on the, you know, he's not going to do anything. One thing I think is important in this scene is uh, Ben's reaction to this uh, attempt at violence. It's instant. It's effective. It's, technically non-lethal <laughs> and you know it really cements his hero's journey role yeah. in this story like i said before he knew what he was doing I, I it did not register on me as a kid but now when i watch that scene he knows exactly what he's doing when yeah. he is talking to luke after he hands him that lightsaber mm -hmm. he is your gandalf with the hobbits your dumbledore with with harry potter your merlin with arthur here he's showing his bona fides because oh yeah yeah he's an old man yeah a completely you know non-threatening old man who ends this awful situation yeah in yeah. an instant yeah. one stroke of his sword 
minimum energy maximum effect yeah <laughs> like that's that's how old men fight <laughs> you know? it's fantastic but it also stands in stark contrast to a, a great and iconic scene we get just a, a few moments later which is after luke and ben had met with chewbacca and han solo to book passage on the millennium falcon han's trying to get out of there and the assassin greedo is uta guta solo and you know you know, puts him back into the thing so he can discuss the little debt he owes job of the hut. As we all know, and has never been changed afterwards, and has never been revised or revisited in any way, shape, or form, that scene ends with Han brutally shooting Greedo first, because he knew that Greedo was there to kill him, had said as much, and was going to blast him. And we all know this to be true, <laughs> right? But, but, you know, my wink and a nod about that aside, Han's solution is simply just shoot to kill, right? Whereas Kenobi, to your point, Chris, Kenobi, he could have sat there and just really just like weighed in on these guys. He just, he did just enough to make the situation stop. Han's got two switches, right? Which is like leave or kill. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's, it's sorry it's, about the mess. Yeah. Sorry about the mess. That's it. His weapon is not so elegant. <laughs> well, it, it isn't so elegant. Exactly. You know, it's a good blaster at his side. Yeah. But like, he doesn't like shoot to wing him. It's like, I'm going to get one shot. I'm just going to kill the guy, you know? Just that that's that. Han doesn't live in this Jedi like Jedi lived in this sort of created environment of this morality. Han lives outside all that. Han's had sure. to work for a living for the last 20 years. Yeah. And and he's had to live in this universe that came about because the Jedi failed. And so he's had to live on the edge. He doesn't have time yeah. for this. He doesn't have time for this lawful good garbage. He's got to, he's got to, he's got to, you know, he's got to move on with his life and yeah. get from place to place. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any problem with that at all. Oh, yeah, certainly no, not. No. There are two flavors of badass in one scene and it's really pretty awesome. And, you know, he, he, Luke is in a place where he gets to, he gets to draw upon both, uh, which is kind of interesting. So not that Han's really a mentor, but he has something he gets to, he gets to, to pull some cues from, which I think is, I think is kind of cool. But one last thing I want to say about this is just touching back is the music in the cantina scene. OMG, man, that stuff is so oh, great. For I, real. I mean, it's just, it's just so, it's so, it's so bonkers. Like, it's just, you know, and, and that's John Williams too. I mean, he composed that as well. But it's like, it's this weird, like, it's got Jamaican steel drums, it's got a theremin, it's got an oboe. I mean, it's just like this crazy. Yeah, this I like crazy, that jazz. Oboe sound. is probably the only thing that even looks remotely familiar in the whole it, it, thing. Yeah, you know, you know, some it's a guy band. playing something that like might be a piano, but it's just got, yeah. Is that a clarinet? What is that? Is that an oboe? Yeah, you know, like, yeah it's the band's called the modal nodes, and like they're just like just going off, and it's like it's such. The cantina theme. But then there's also, like, at the second half of that scene. Like, yeah, but then, but then there's like a slower, like, you know, you know, like, like, like a slower, like, swing to it. Yeah, it's just so cool. Like, he, it's almost like they invented a whole new kind of music just for this one scene, just to set the tone, right? And, just, and as, an act of, as an act of world building, I would put that thing. I mean, it's not quite up with like Tolkien completely, uh, you know, inventing and, and you know entire languages. But you know, it's it's a music that I had never heard I, of a kind I never heard before. It was a weird mashup of elements, and it was so distinct. But, but Joe. Well, the best part is it stops when they have the when when Kenobi cuts off the hand of this guy, <laughs> and it stops. Oh my god! 
and then it just starts back it's up again. Yeah. Oh, all right, we'll just pop it in. <laughs> they are professionals we're, we're, we're after all. This is a loose brothers behind the chicken wire. Like the show will still go on. Yeah, yeah exactly. We got chicken both wire? kinds of music here, country and western. Yeah. Let's not do that because I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Again. Right. Yes, it's, it's, it, that is the, the beer bottles against the chicken wire. Mm-hmm. It, it is like these guys yeah, are like, sure. all right, three and a one and like, a two. Clearly, they've right seen into this before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I just love the the canteen scene. It's just just a really cool. It's a really cool moment. It's like, and it's just one of those, you know, creatively, the thing I love about it is that so much effort and energy and imagination went into that scene only for 90% of its details to be seen once. There's such a fearsome just courage to this, like we can put our energy in this, show it once and move on. And that's okay. That's the point of it. It's like you you you're just you walk out of it that scene and you're bewildered like can we just go back there for another movie please because that's like there's some amazing stuff happening there and like no 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 you just get you get five minutes that's all you get and, and that's I, I, well, yeah. you know some of the extended universe stuff does go back bill you need to True uh, fact. i, I have you know, i have read tales of the most Isley cantina which is a spectacularly fun book and it, it is super tell, good. it tells the story of every single person in that scene and how they came to be in the cantina and all that and i gotta say i'm not a big eu fan Big fan of that book though. That book was banging. It was really good stuff. Sorry. And I know we're not I know we're not supposed to go outside of, of this film, but like there's a thematic component to this that we see again at Jabba's Palace and Return of the Jedi. That they go back to this concept of like, okay, you know, here's the yeah, here's the absolutely. multiracial. And then yeah. what I, one of the things that, that worked in Force Awakens was they, they give you a nod to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, at Maz's place. Yeah. It's like it's another yeah. like you see where all the galaxy comes together in a way that there's there to do business and to play games and periodically do violence to one another and basically be shady. <laughs> it's, 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 it's multiracially. <laughs> exactly. Know, whatever. What it is, is so good. It's so good. <laughs> anyway, Tom, I'd like to hand things over to you now uh, for your moment of truth, because it takes a bit of a different jog here. So I'd love to get into it. I was five when the movie came out. I went with my dad. It was another one of those, you know, like precious movies that I got to experience first with dad in the movie theater one of the things that just struck me was like just the, the sheer size of everything in Star Wars. So like my moment of truth is, is the scene, you know, where they come out of uh, hyperspace, Alderaan's not there. There's a big, you know, meteor shower where Alderaan's supposed to be. And while they're trying to figure out what's going on, uh, you know, this fighter flies by and they're like, oh my God, like, what is that fighter doing here? Chase it down before he can uh, rat us out to the Empire. I love this scene. It's it's just so great, especially Sir Alec Guinness in it, you know, because like as they're chasing this fighter toward this small moon (laughs) that uh, (laughs) he's heading toward, because, you know, a fighter that small can't get out into space on its own this look of realization comes over Kenobi's face and you know, he utters that line that everybody loves to quote. That's no moon. It's a space station. And you're like, Oh my God. That's too big to be a space station. <laughs> it's too big to be a space station. Like, but like you've seen by this point in time, a number of shots of the death star. Yeah. But the problem is like, you've seen it and you realize, all right, it's a pretty big thing, but you've got nothing in it for context 
and you know the tractor beam takes a hold of the millennium falcon and starts sucking them in and like as you're getting closer to it and you're seeing other things going on like you're realizing just how big this damn thing is and you're like <laughs> yeah. oh my god like a five-year-old kid looking at that was like yeah. oh my like, mine was just blown all over the place especially yeah. when you know they bring the ship in and you just see it's like this huge docking bay is kind of like this little off to the side thing you know yeah it's like auxiliary parking lot thing it's so great <laughs> yeah I, I love it you know and like lucas did so much i think with just like gargantuan size in this i mean from the opening scene of the movie where you have you know this little corellian ship getting chased by this gigantic dagger of a uh, oh, star yes. destroyer Yes. And, you know, the lighting that they use and everything was just so, like, it's casting all these shadows and you're looking at it and you're like, this thing is immense. Like, you, you get a <laughs> shot of that big bridge that's up there where they're spanning yeah. this thing from and it's like, that thing's the size of a city block. And then you start, like, in your own head to think, like, that thing is the size of the Upper East Side. It is huge. <laughs> it's the Titanic. It's so yeah, that bumper sticker. The next thing you see, you know, you're on Tatooine and, you know, they're, they're capturing R2 and C-3PO and all that. And, like, you see those sand crawlers? Like, that blew my mind, too. Like, you got the, yeah. all right, they're little Jawas, but, like, those things don't even get a quarter way up the tracks on those things. I yeah, mean, it's, that is a huge, like, you know, <laughs> mining vehicle that, like, they salvaged. And, 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 and like, just the sheer size of it does that to like especially the young kids like as young as yeah. we were watching that we're like this is so cool these things are huge yeah i mean you get a lot more yeah. of it in later movies but uh yeah you know, just the scale of it blew my mind yeah it was yeah i was willing to deal on a sense of grandeur that I, nothing i had ever seen before really could do and like uh, like especially like the opening shot where the star destroyer is kind of you know flying you know, from, you know from the top of the screen is chasing the tantive four and just it just keeps going right and, and like that that shot had been like parodied a bunch of times like oh it's just so big but like Baseball, you, you, go, yeah. you can only make fun of it just because it works so well i mean you're just so just like your mind has no context for it so you start to reel before and, and yeah like i remember i was watching the movie again this evening and i love that scene when uh, you just mentioned like as as as, as the falcon yeah, it keeps going, like, like the Falcon keeps getting closer and closer and the thing it's going into gets smaller and smaller. Like, holy, like they have built an artificial planet. You really start to believe it. You know, it's just, it is really that big. But, you know, the thing also is that it wasn't just a matter of everything's big in Star Wars. Big things are getting done in Star Wars. Right? When you talk about, you know, that's no moon, I think about the scene where they destroy Alderaan. You look back at it, it's just this horrific act of, of genocide that Tarkin does. And like he specifically, he's trying to get Leia to, to give up where the rebels are, right? But he's like, I think I'll destroy an entire innocent planet just to show we're not kidding around here, you know? They destroy a whole planet. I mean, like as a kid, I'm like, a whole planet just exploded. Like oh, just this, the scale, it's villainy on a scale I couldn't even grasp. You know, I just, I just couldn't even wrap my head around it. And yet Kenobi does. Yeah. That scene where he feels it. That That, that yeah. is, I, th I think, a, a huge establishing scene for the entire franchise. Yeah. You know, it establishes what the Force is and, and establishes it as, as well as a Force for good, yeah. however Darth Vader's using it. And he gets it, even when we don't. Yeah, yeah. I was of an age where the first movie that I remember seeing in the theater with, with my father as well, Tom, was, was Empire because I was five for Empire. And I can remember being in the theater and the screen when you're five years old, the screen is like football field size, right? I mean, like yeah. you are just experiencing this. And I, all I can really remember is 
uh, impressions of the ships and how big they were and how big everything was. Yeah. It is, it is, you're right. It's Homerian, right? Yeah. It, it is very much epic upon yeah. a scale that nothing else was then. And, and when you watch it on the TV at home, no matter how big your TV is, it's not the same thing as when you go see it on a 60 foot screen in a theater and your breath is literally being, t- it's like you're at a rock concert or a football yeah. game or something where you're, you're experiencing something Yeah. and it changed everything in cinema. That, that, I mean, it changed what it meant to have a blockbuster. It changed what it meant to try to, dis- try to depict something on screen mm-hmm. larger than life. And we hadn't seen, I don't care. You can take 2001, you can take Jaws, you can take whatever it was. Nothing had done this before. And it, yeah. it, it really did change everything as far as yeah. what you could attempt to show and what you could attempt to inflict on an audience. Uh, I, I really uh, wanted that feeling again. You know, that's why I went like to the movie theater for like the re-releases and stuff. Like yeah. I had literally by that point seen Star Wars dozens of times. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. We used to re-watch it like over and over. I did a kid down the block for me. He was, his parents were like the first uh, on the block to invest in a Betamax. Yo, <laughs> high rollers. But uh, yeah, like, you know, he had Star you Wars chose poorly. Tape and we, we wore that tape out <laughs> yeah. watching it. I mean, oh, yeah. over and over and over again, but it's still nothing like the experience of seeing it like on a big screen like that. Just, yeah, I remember vividly taking my kids to force awakens and they were you know they had seen these movies on tv and i mean but they'd never been in the theater for and then and then you know the, the whole the screen is black yeah. and the fanfare of trumpets and, yeah. and then the whole thing the fanfare right and i i i, I did not see the beginning of force awakens because i was watching my children who were five yeah. experience and the look on their face yeah. of just absolute Delight's not the right word. They were transfixed. Yeah. And and it is it is almost a physical experience. So you're hit by the, that wave of sound, that wall yeah. of sound that Williams throws out there. And then Star Wars, right? Like, I mean, I I, I you can't even conceive of yeah. it's like being hit by a physical force. It, it and, is. Joe, I will tell you this. Every single time I've ever gone to see any Star Wars movie in the theater, if I know there are kids like young kids like directly in front of me or to the side of me i always look to see what their reactions are it's what you say it's the same every time it doesn't matter which star wars movie it is it's like they're hit by physical force it's just it's just this suddenly i mean you get like the afterburners are hit with no warning you go from zero to mock a million like it's almost like it's almost like um an emotional equivalent of when you see the hyperspace effect and the stars it's like you are that immersed and you see these little kids and they had no defense against it. No, and they're not you know, inoculated against it. No, it's a, it's a joyous thing to see. I can remember going out of the movie theater with my children after those movies. And they, yeah. I like, they were like, honestly, it was like the Macy's day parade where they were the balloon and I held the rope and, yeah. and trying to bring them down to bring them back in the car. Cause they were just were, they had been annihilated. By these yeah. Star Wars. They were the movies. I saw them and I just wanted to live in them especially as a kid, you know, when I first saw them, they didn't, like, you saw it in the theater, that was it. Then you relived it by, by playing it in your backyard, by reading about it in books, by collecting the trading cards, by getting the toys, because that was the only way you could have some totem, but which you can kind of try to relive that experience you had in the theater. But that effect is like, I never wanted to leave. I wanted to live in this, in this movie, you know, and I, 
I've watched a million movies ever since, and there are lots of movies I super, 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 super love. Very, very few of them ever got me to want to just, you know, live to want me <laughs> made me want to live in the movie the way Star Wars has always made me want to live in that movie. Um, but but and, it's 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 not a cinematic experience. It is. I'm trying to think of how best to best to describe it. It is. It's an experience of it's an event, more than a film. Mm-hmm. And I honestly like whether it's the other blockbusters, the Marvel movies or the Harry Potter movies or whatever else that I feel like I have to go to the movie to see these on the big screen, right? Because of whatever. It is. But the, the Star Wars movies are, are um, they're a life apart from that. They, they are something that uh, affects you in a, in a way emotionally and yeah. uh, monumentally that just uh, nothing else comes close to. Every time I've seen a new Star Wars movie, they all feel like some kind of initiation. Like Kenobi says, you know, you've just taken your first step into a larger world. I feel like <laughs> that world has expanded one more factor every time I see one of these movies for the first time. Man. It's just a magical effect, and I am so grateful for it because it's just a really cool experience as, a, as somebody who loves stories. It's just something you don't get to do a whole heck of a lot. But one thing I do have to say, this is a bit of a tangent, but just I just have to say this, the magnitude of the Empire's evil, right, and how they're willing to do things like the shattered entire planet. <laughs> there's one detail though i can't once i noticed it i cannot ever i, I can't miss it every time i watch star wars right it's like I, it's something i can't see it's just my it's one of my favorite little details of the movie it actually makes me laugh because it's so it's so ridiculous in a way that doesn't work except in a pulpy movie like this and ridiculous in a way that doesn't work except with an evil empire as sinister as this one and is so disregarding human life as this one, it's when they're destroying Alderaan, right? And the technician's like, primary ignition sequence, and everything's getting ready to go. And all of a sudden, the lasing coil, and you see these two technicians on this like standing platform that has no guardrail on it, okay? Manning some power, and they're like, ah! And they like, they like shield their eyes from the beam. It's like, those guys have cancer right? Those guys, those guys have cancer, okay? <laughs> like, there's no way, like, 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 in an empire, we can get force choked to death by Vader for missing a trick. Who do you have to tick off to get that job? Like, that's like the crappy job. The what do they say, though? What do they say when they say, like, they say, fire when ready? What does he say? With pleasure. <laughs> yeah, with, with pleasure. I mean, right? Like, yeah, they're, they're so bad. But, but I was like, only an empire that's so cavalier about, well, you know, plenty more where they came from. Just get two other schmucks off some planet. Yeah, drunk like, Sector G. Yeah, I was like, I was like, that's an OSHA violation, man. There's no guardrails <laughs> in that at all. Where, they fall. We, where, where are you going to fall? Into the laser. That's where I, <laughs> you know, but I just, I just love that. Once I Gave the I cost of an incineration. Yeah, right. I just, I just can't get over it. It's just this, which is this cool thing. It's very Flash Gordon. It's very Buck Rogers. And I mean, you know, Luke is very much intended that. So I don't look at it like, oh, it's silly. I just like, I just love it. Like it's so over the top. It's this little detail. And I just, I just, you know, when the guy shields his face from that beam, it's like, how hot is it in there, man? <laughs> Seriously, like, do they get, they must get a medical checkup every day. <laughs> Don't you get the sense though that like this is the first time they've used it, right? Like that's that's the um, that's the beta test for the thing. They've never shot this thing in anger, so they don't really know what it's going to do. Like it could blow the whole. To talk about something, move. Yes, that's not true because in, in Rogue One they fire it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, but I, my understanding was that that was a first test. public demonstration. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, wait, they said the station is now fully operational. Whatever that means, I don't know. If they finally yeah. got the, finally got the toilets on deck forty-five to work or whatever. But you know, the punch list is now complete. Whatever that means, right? They, so have may, they may have run this thing in tests, but they've never fired it at a planet. I mean, they may have done the bikini at all, but they've never fired <laughs> yeah, this thing yeah. at a planet, right? Yeah. 
So these guys are like, maybe this thing will work, maybe it won't. Like, let's yeah. throw the switch and see what happens. Anyway, let's get the cancer jockeys making their earn their paycheck. All right, boys. Like, oh no. <laughs> so I don't know. This is the worst. This is the worst. So anyway, Joe, I want to switch over to you because your moment of truth is just an utterly, utterly iconic moment in this movie. And uh, I just I want to give you all the time in the world to talk about it. So take it away. When Vader and Kenobi face off near the end of, the, of, the, of this film, um, it, it's a brilliant thematic counterpoint to what the filmmakers have been throwing at us, right? It, it's not frenetic. It's not heart-stopping. It's not kinetic. Um, it's this quiet moment thick with the pathos in an untold history. I mean, these two men have clearly have a past. They've been friends. They've been adversaries. And, and this tension is palpable and, and it's unknowable. One of my chief complaints with the prequels is they fail to adequately plumb the depth of this feeling between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Here we have the first lightsaber duel of the Star Wars universe. It's not particularly spectacular. It's not packed with force shoves and backflips or mm -hmm. pronouncements holding the high ground. It's these two old tired men probing each other's defenses in this slow dance of mastery, right? If you've ever seen two black belts in karate, they don't just swing at each other. They, they, they kind of yes. circle each other, right? Yeah. Um, and it, it's clear yeah. that oh, it's clear, <laughs> I so it's, feel that, Joe. I so right? feel that. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's clear that Obi-Wan is an old, is the shadow of his former self. And that Vader, while he's at his apex as an alpha predator, um, there's still this tangible respect there for Kenobi as an accomplished duelist. And I also think that, and I look back on it now, when I was a kid, I mean, those of us that knew Star Wars before Empire remember Vader as this badass before he was Luke's dad. And even then, I think Vader had been at the mountaintop and was just starting to come down, right? So we've got these two guys that are on the back nine. And we didn't know this at the time. But the last time these two tangled, it wound up with Proto Vader taking a lava bath with fewer limbs than he started with. And so this scene, it's all Joseph Campbell. It's all hero's journey. It's all the aging mentor who has to be struck down for the protagonist to emerge as the hero, right? It's, it's Gandalf and Moria. It's Dumbledore on the tower. It is, it's steeped in this narrative meaning. And, and yet what I really remember is this visual and auditory experience. The lightsabers crackling and meeting with that static hum. We've mm -hmm. heard, you know, we talked about it, Chris, in your moment the sound of the lightsaber, but now we get the sound of lightsabers making contact with each other. Yeah. And that is a unique sound. Um, and so the colors, the imagery, we've got this black clad baddie and the old master, this juxtaposition of a futuristic setting with the anachronistically elegant dance of sword play. And so we see Obi-Wan who sees Luke and his cohorts about to escape and he kind of smiles just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's our first indication that the good guys have a power that the dark side can't match. You know, Luke Skywalker might be the new hope, but Obi-Wan Kenobi embodies this investment in that hope and that the long-suffering sacrifice to enable that hope and that heroism. And so this is my moment of truth because it's so narratively drenched in Lucas's commitment to that power of myth. And because it's this moment that my favorite character takes his final corporeal bow and becomes more powerful than we can possibly imagine. This is the yeah. moment for me where Star Wars leaves pulp behind and really becomes legend. Mm. and just becomes so iconic and indelible the scenery of the, the lightsabers crossed and i just i it, it it leaves me honestly speechless thinking about it so yeah. this what you're saying is uh it, this is when star wars became more powerful than you could possibly imagine <laughs> exactly and, yeah. and and yet it doesn't have to be struck down to get there I mean, I, I'm a huge Obi-Wan guy. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, the whole 
I want to be Luke. I want to be yeah. Han. Like, I mean, like, give me Obi-Wan, you know, yeah. seven days a week and twice on Sundays. And, and I just, I just think he's so cool. And, yeah. you know, Sir Alec Guinness obviously brings a lot to that, but oh, just the character so himself much. is awesome. So much. You know, one of the cool things about this scene, and I never really quite picked up on it until, I would say many years after I first saw it, is when this scene first starts, right? And Kenobi, you know, turns a corner and, and there's Vader. His lightsaber's already ignited, right? He doesn't sit there and like, okay, I'm going to draw. His weapon's drawn. He knows what he's up against. And this is before we even know what happens in the prequels. There's like, that's, a, that's an omission from Vader, almost a weakness. Like, this guy is so serious, I can't even afford to be undrawn for a moment. I have to be ready before he even shows up in the room. And it just it just says a lot. It just says a lot about what kind of a guy Vader is, where he's coming from, what kind of a guy Obi-Wan is, where he's coming from, and where they both are in their own journeys through power and their journey as a hero or as a villain. And it's neat because it delivers that great irony of, you know, yeah, Vader gets the last stroke, but he loses the battle. He just doesn't even know it yet, you know, and it's just, it's just a really, it is, it is a super cool scene, Joe. It's a super cool and, scene. And honestly, when one of the things that I have to give Lucas credit for as a storyteller is he doesn't make a meal out of the backstory of these guys. Like, you know how it is yeah. as, an, as, as a storyteller or as an author, when you create a backstory, yeah. the temptation is to dump it on your audience versus letting it inform moments in your, mm -hmm. in your narrative. He lets the backstory here inform the narrative. If you go to his original novelization, because Lucas actually wrote the novel for this, yeah. um, he talks about the lava and he talks about some of that, but he doesn't give it to you here. It's all mm -hmm. subtext. Yeah. And it's all Kenobi kind of whitewashing it for Luke <laughs> when he talks to him in Chris's moment. It says like, oh yeah, he, uh, he killed your dad, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, like, uh, that, that is your dad. Right? From a certain point of view. From a certain point of view, exactly. right? But this moment, I mean, these guys, and I love the fact that they're not jumping off the ceiling. They're not yeah. doing backflips. They're just like, they're both so incredibly powerful. And they're just, yeah. they're just kind of, if you've ever seen fencers at like an Olympic level or an international yeah. level of fencers, it's not Errol Flynn. It is tap, no. tap, tap, tap. See, oh, oh, you're like, you don't even see the stroke that does it. You're like, what just right. happened there? They looked at each other and then all of a sudden, wholeheartedly agree when i was studying brazilian jiu-jitsu one time i was at a, uh, as a at a tournament one of the teachers of one of the schools that i studied at had just black belted and a black belt in bjj by the way is like minimum 10-year commitment okay if you're going like three four or five times a week it's minimum 10-year commitment okay so the black belt shows i mean an immense amount of work and and everything else that goes with it so within a couple of minutes all of a sudden the auditorium fell silent as you're watching these two guys grapple and they're just like, just going at it and almost nothing happened. Like it was, they were so evenly matched. They're so skilled. They're so doing each other's moves in their own head that like, to your point, there wasn't a lot of like crazy arrow phone stuff. It was just like the tiniest emotions and the tiniest of margins. And I think about that when I see this scene, I, I so hear what you're saying, Joe. And you see a lot of fan edits of Star Wars. And I saw this one that was like, you know, you know how, the, how the lightsaber in New Hope really should have been. Somebody redid it as if it was like one of these big hyperkinetic, super flashy things with, you know, Kenobi flying through the air and people just these crazy. And it's like, you know what? It looked cool. It had none of the feel of the scene. It didn't carry with me. Like, I didn't care. For me, it's like there's a reason why they're moving the way they move. There's a reason why this thing plays out the way it plays out. And you feel it, I think, also like right after Kenobi dies and Luke is like, no, he starts blasting away at these stormtroopers, right? And he's like, he's popping them left and right. And they're like, we got to go. And Luke's like, maybe I'll just stay here and kill the whole empire. He's just shooting away. 
and the first thing you hear moments afterwards, you hear Kenobi going, run, Luke, run. Not stay and fight. It's like, dude, you got to get out of here. And you're like, okay, these are powers beyond powers. And we don't know what we're messing with. And it's like, you already see right off the bat what Kenobi's long game is and yeah. what a long game it is. And it's like really cool. Luke's like, okay. And it's, it's, just a, it's just a super awesome transformation scene that isn't even the climax of the movie. I don't think I really understood until I started to study Taekwondo. You think about like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw hands and it's going to be a thing. It's like, no, so much of it is patience and just that, that feeling out. And, and to your point, you know, when you get, you know, black belts in Taekwondo, like you can't be a master until you're like 80 because it's like, <laughs> you know, you, can, you don't be a ninth degree black belt until you're like 80 years old because you have to take, there's a minimum of like five years then six years and seven yeah. years. I watched it this morning sort of for the first time since I started studying martial art. And, and they're just like, they're just tapping their blades sort of gently, just like, who's going to make the first mistake? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's and it's like, you'll see just like a quick little faint. And it's like, yeah. no, 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 that's not it. And, and, and it, their it, margins it's, of error are so slim. Yeah, it's yeah. like a dance. It's so it's tiny. Dance. So slim. And I, one of the things that Ewan McGregor does so well in, when he embodies Alec Guinness is this uh, fluidity to to Obi-Wan, the way that he engages in lightsaber dueling. It's, it's all... Yeah. It's all patience and it's all waiting for the other guy to make a mistake, right? And, and I, just, I just love this scene so much. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty fantastic. All right, um, who didn't reenact the whole scene with a wiffle ball bat? When we were playing Star Wars as a kid, everyone wanted to be Han Solo. I'm like, no, I want to be a Jedi because then you got to wield a wiffle ball bat or a stick from the woods. I'm like, this is the where it's at, man. Uh, a flashlight. A flashlight. A flashlight. Or all flashlights, your blaster yeah, or flashlights. Bolts, that's yeah, how exactly. that works. Do, do, do. <laughs> Heck yeah. No, you know, we, we recreated this battle so many times. <laughs> so many times, Tom. You know, the, the little glimpses you got of this world just really wanted you to, you know, put yourself into it. And, yeah. like, I, you know, I remember, uh, like, after seeing Star Wars, you know, I grew up in eastern Long Island. And, you know, I, my dad's family, they were all, like, in different spots in Jersey. And I was really lucky if I got to see my cousins on that side of the family, you know, like, once, maybe twice a year. If that, you know, there were, I would go sometimes years without seeing them. But like after Star Wars came out and I went to go visit them in Jersey, we almost like immediately went into, okay, we're playing Star Wars. Yeah. Like kids who had seen this and had not <laughs> talked to one another and like just immediately had the understanding, like, all right, we're going to play Star Wars. And, you know, mm -hmm. we all just ran around that. We picked our characters running yeah. around house you know with the wiffle ball bat and the you know the something for uh you know hans blaster yeah like that was what you wanted to do when you were that little and and star wars had just come out you just really wanted to put yourself into that world and like imagine all the other things that were happening in it it became at once a universal language and a massive shared experience it's just like you know you can be kids you never even knew before and you just went to star wars and immediately you could suss each other out just by playing star wars right? it, it, it was the beginning of that as a phenomenon if you ask me because yeah. there have been a hundred things like it since star blazers or the next generation or you know akira there, there have been so many things like it since where if you knew it you were in but it was yeah. the first thing like that yeah yeah it, it was it and was, everybody it was just, knew it it was just so inescapable, you know. It was just, it was, you know, it, it was like the Millennium Falcon trying to get away from the Death Star. You couldn't get away from Star Wars for a very long period of time. You just couldn't. I mean, it was just, it was all encompassing. It was, just, it was just everywhere. The Cantina theme was a radio hit. Oh man, it was <laughs> enough said. Like I said, I had to have my own lightsaber. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. 
I don't have one yet. I should really get one. I still keep it right here next to my desk. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the Vader's Vault special uh, with a purple blade. And uh, (laughs) yes, I will fight you with it because it is a combat saber. Yeah, Um, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. You know, I I loved so much just like the thought of of having a lightsaber. Like I'm with you, Chris, right? Like I I, do just like envisioning myself, like walking around with a lightsaber and like, how cool would that be? Nobody's got a defense for it. You know, like people would shoot guns at me and I would just ricochet everything back at them. You know, like it was the coolest like weapon concept. I think like I can like... Name something better. I mean, it's hand, really hard. On a bricks, I loved it so much. <laughs> I seriously struggle to think of a sci-fi weapon that is more instantly cooler than the lightsaber. As soon as you see it, no. like, wow, that is boss. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, you can you can just go straight down to laser pistol all the way down, and no, there's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing else. <laughs> but but I mean, what it fueled was, you know, that that same fantasy ralphie has in a christmas story you know like you're gonna be the mighty warrior that defends the good and you're gonna be the hero and i ate that up you know i i never wanted to be han solo as a kid but you know as an adult yeah he's a cooler character and and definitely a better actor you know in 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 the context of these films harris ford but oh my god no i wanted to be luke no question about it. Super, super cool. That's super cool. Well, look, before we wrap up, a final thought. So I saw Star Wars for the first time when it came out in 1977. And I was only six years old, six going on seven. My Cub Scout troop had gotten together and went out for an evening showing of the movie because you just couldn't get in the theater otherwise. Uh, and even though my mind was just blown by what I was seeing, I still was only, you know, six going on seven. So... I regret to report that I actually fell asleep during my first watching of, of Star Wars. I think I conked out shortly after Cantina scene and woke up right at the end when Luke was strafing the surface of the Death Star. And I remember clearly wondering, why is he shooting some city in space? I don't get it. Um, and, you know, we walked out of the theater and all the kids in my troop were just like, that was so incredible. I'm like, oh boy, like nobody noticed that I'd fallen asleep. I'm like, ah, this is, I got to see this again to see what I missed. So I I would get plenty of other chances to see the movie again in the theater since the movie re-released numerous times over the next couple of years. Uh, And so I did see it properly. I saw it a bunch of times, but I never forgot how I nodded off during my first watch of one of my favorite movies ever. Then in 1997, they released the original Star Wars trilogy again to theaters, but this time with additional footage. It was kind of to to warm up people for the prequel trilogy that was soon going to follow. And so Lucas can kind of address certain little things he wanted to futz with with the movie uh, over the years. But, you know, for me, going to the theater again at that time, it wasn't just a chance to see Star Wars again. For me, it felt like a chance I could see it for the first time again. I'd seen it so many times at home. I knew the movies by heart, but this time there would be things I had not seen before. I'd have to keep my eyes open and be ever watchful to see something, you know, lest I, I miss it. You know, I had to watch it as if I had never been to a Star Wars movie before. And so I remember very clearly this experience. We went and the theater was packed. People were in costume. When the lights went down, a hundred lightsabers instantly ignited from the crowd and were just raised by jubilant fans. The, the atmosphere was electric. My hands were trembling. And, you know, the 20th Century Fox drum roll and fanfare came up and then the music stopped. And for a moment, the theater was a silent darkness. And then, you know, came the words by which I had dreamed a million dreams since I was a boy, long time ago, 
in a galaxy far, far away. Bam! Then the big Star Wars lights a screen, right? As we said before, Blair, John Williams Orchestra just goes on and tears of joy just ran freely down my face, right? They streaked my, my cheeks wide. And my mouth broke into this huge open grin as I read the words of the opening crawl. And I knew right then and there, I was back where I started. Then and there, I was watching Star Wars for the first time again. You know, for many of its fans, Star Wars is a foundational hero myth. It's a story of good and evil that helps to craft one's own context for what it means to seek your destiny, to face evil, to stand by your friends, and to believe in something you know to be true but can only feel. For such fans like myself, Star Wars is more than a movie. It just is. It's, it's part of us. Uh, and always has been, and always will be. And man, what a wonderful thing that is. Everyone, thanks for joining us tonight. May the Force be with you. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. Uh, Joe Pace, mic check, please. Everything's fine here. How, how are you? <laughs> Boring conversation anyway. <laughs> Look, we're going to have company. I saw a great, a great gift. It was, just, it was just a picture of Luke and Han, but in like kitchen clothes, like serving up dinner. And it's just, Luke, we're going to have company over and over and over again. <laughs> So, I love that they didn't give they didn't give Harrison Ford any dialogue for that. They didn't give him. Yeah. They said just 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 buy time. He's like, yeah, oh, just buy time. Okay. Like, uh, how are you? Everything's fine here. Exactly. Oh, I'm so excited about this one. <laughs> I know, right? Well, <laughs> I, I'm like, like I, I I partly started this whole thing so we could get this episode. I'm like so I'm so, like so excited. I'm like I'm gonna tell you right now. I will I will probably get like all teared up as I read my my sign off on this one. I will get I will probably and get we'll emotional. make and we'll make fun of you. It'll be great.